guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And happy birthday, America. The best country <laughs> in the world, with the best citizens, with the best people, with the best everything except cars. Well, <laughs> kind of. That's to be argued. That's so well, everything's to be argued for me, Jake. True. The encyclopedia of opinions over that's here. Right. That's right. That's right. So I'm excited. It's my uh, third favorite, second favorite holiday. Second favorite. What's be- first? My birthday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then uh, Jesus' birthday is after Independence Day. Right. Christmas. So, yeah, okay. Christmas. Yeah. So it is the 3rd of July. Tomorrow's the 4th of July. Again, Independence Day for America. And speaking of stars and stripes, I want to remind all of our listeners to leave us a five-star iTunes review. That really helps us. It does. It really does uh, it really does help us out quite a bit. You're really pulling the Super Troy McClure today, aren't you? <laughs> You're like full-on 100% like Troy Hi, McClure. I'm Troy McClure. You may know me from you may such know films me as... from such podcasts as Overcrest and some other ones that I won't mention <laughs> that I'm on. Um, yeah, and share it with your friends. Of course, if you like it, we really appreciate that. And it helps us out. Yeah, it really does. So, Chris, I have a special edition quick shift story for you. It's, uh, of course, in uh, honor of America's birthday. Okay. It's as American as apple pie, baseball, and soaring eagles. I like all the three of those things. Very good. So, and capitalism. Okay. Well, it has plenty of that as well, I'll tell you. So, the story starts in a recent heyday of Americana, the early 1960s. So, with baby boomers... The generation that will boomed out babies after World War II. <laughs> they boomed out babies? Well, that's why they're called the baby boomers. They boomed out babies. I, I don't know. I think it's more about the fact that it was babies and it was a boom in. Nope. They boomed out the babies, Chris. Okay. We're saying that. That's, so they boomed out all the babies after World War II. That's And wrong. so in the 1960s, they saw this new generation coming of age, right? So for the first time ever, it was expected that shoppers in the 18 to 34 age range would account for more than 50% of new car sales. That's not me anymore. <laughs> I'm now in the, like, when you go to tick a box, yeah. it says, are you 18 to whatever, 18 to 34, 35 to 50. I'm, I'm in the second. So thing you're no longer included in this. I know. So this meant that the younger generation would now be the majority of car buyers. This was basically the first time this has happened since cars were, you know, a popular thing, right? Okay. So it's no surprise that this new generation was completely different from their parents who were previously the ones buying cars. So now we're going to enter Lee Ayakoa, vice president of the North American Automotive Operations of a certain well-known car manufacturer. And he was well aware that these new younger buyers wanted a different type of car. So this is not Lee Iacocca. That's what I meant to say. Okay. All right. Just, Lee just... Iacocca. All right. Yes. Um, but what specifically these younger generation were looking for... Iacoa wanted to be absolutely tuned into the market. So after all, if you're going to be going to the effort to design a whole new car for this new generation, you better get it right. Yeah, because it costs a fortune. And it takes a while. Yep. So every facet of the new car's design why was did, Why didn't they just take deposits down? Yeah, well, I guess that worked for the Dale car and Tesla. <laughs> Well, you have to have a car to take deposits, right? So he wants I don't think you do. <laughs> Good point. Never mind. Again, you don't. All right. Well, in this instance, <laughs> Lee Iacocca was 
designing a car to take deposits on, we'll say. And so every facet of the new car's design was considered. For example, Lee launched his marketing team into a now-famous research study across college campuses. Students were polled to determine whether they considered bucket seats an impediment to romance. Oh, <laughs> what? Yes. Oh, what like, the, what? they literally were like testing and polling every facet of this new car's design to get it right for this market. I think between ages around the age of 18 nothing is an, Im- <laughs> an impediment yeah so well, did, well, do we know the results of this as poll? it turned out 42 percent preferred bu- bucket seats for first dates because they seemed more cool oh, whereas okay. those couples that were going steady preferred the bench seat for obvious reasons okay yes okay, we yeah, do have the yeah. results i love that so other design preferences expressed by younger people included the sound of a high performance engine and the feeling of being close to the road in other, in other words, they wanted a sports car, right? right? So another important development affecting the market, besides just this younger generation, was the explosion of the number of multiple car buying households. So the average American now is making more money through the early 60s and was able to afford a second car. And this is significant because research showed that while the men took their primary car to the office, their wives were the ones making most use of the second car. Yeah, somebody's got to buy groceries. What's even more, they were becoming, these wives were becoming more opinionated and influential in making these purchase decisions. Becoming? Women have always been, as much as men want to say it, (laughs) have always been the the drivers behind nearly everything. I thought you were going to say, get back in the kitchen. That's that's not, you don't get to make that decision. Well, they can certainly (laughs) be in the kitchen, but that doesn't mean that they aren't... uh, in charge, truly. Yes. So they did more studies and found that women of the time were looking for a car that was small and maneuverable and one that would handle and park easily. So the specs for this new car slowly came into focus. They wanted to develop a car that weighed no more than 2,500 pounds. The length would Jeez. not be more than 180 inches. And the engine had to be a peppy six-cylinder with an option of a V8. So for seating, they actually wanted four passengers with the aforementioned bucket seats and the personality and this is straight out of the manufacturer's briefing had to be quote the car needed to be demure enough for church going racy enough for the drag strip and modish enough for the country club modish modish is what they said i don't know what modish means i think it's like is that, posh. Like, is that modern posh modish should we i feel like we need to use this more often i didn't look it up because i just assumed since it was a quote you're looking quite modish this evening when we're going to the country club yeah i guess well that never happens for me so i guess i'll never be modish (laughs) (laughs) so iacocca set forth his designers on an unprecedented schedule so given these requirements that we just listed he penned the corporate design studios against each other to each come up with clay models okay so he wanted them in just two weeks as well So this short deadline was unheard of in designing cars, and it sent a wave of enthusiasm through the studio. Do we know why he was so urgent about this, wanting to get this? He wanted it to come to market quickly. Okay. So uh, in the end, there were seven models that were presented to management, and quote, while several of them could have been winners in any other competition, one design stood out, distinguished by an air of sporty poise. Oh, okay. So the car was introduced to the public on April 17th, 1964, only three years after the planning of the car began, which in like car development cycle timelines... Everything moved a little bit slower back then, too. I right. Mean, it's not like you were like emailing Bob your design thing. 
You actually had to get off your chair, walk get down, your go, ass to the, and go, go to the talk other to building. Bob. Hey, Bob, what do you think of this design? I mean, That'd it was nice. all, everything was just slower. Yeah, it was. So three years, though, I mean, that's impressive. Yeah, sure. So the release and marketing of this car was also unprecedented. A special preview for the press was arranged in New York four days before the public unveiling of the car. And you can appreciate this. This is a genius marketing move by them. After the car's unveiling, they had 150-some reporters there. All of a sudden, they paired off 124 of these reporters... They told them to hop in one of the brand new cars, and they handed them rally notes. Oh, great. They were then set off on a 750-mile rally up to Detroit. Do we know uh, what these rally notes are? Can we go relive this rally? I didn't find them anywhere. Did You looked, though, yeah. Yeah, New York to Detroit, though, so 750 miles. Okay. I, I'd actually would really love to see that. That would be cool. Notes. But can you imagine showing up like you're just like you're oppressed for, I don't know, the New York Times or something. You go, you're <laughs> expecting, you, a, a, you know, a, an unveiling of a car. I'm sure they did tell them at a time. But for the drama, it's it's better to imagine they just hand you keys and some rally notes and say, all right, now you're really going to get to know the car. This is the way it was when I went to drive the M3 M4 when it was released at Road America. Oh, really? Is you could either you had two choices. You could either spend time on the track or you could take the rally notes and go out and drive around following this map or whatever. It was, it was interesting. Cool. So I think this was very like unprecedented at the time, though, for the manufacturer to do this. And the genius of this marketing resulted in editorial and cover stories in all the major publications. Look, Esquire, U.S. News and World Report, Time and Life all had cover stories on this new car. And the reports were really positive and praised the car. So another history- What was the gist of the, the vibe everybody got? Um, that it was, I, I don't, I don't have it here, Okay, just but curious. it just said it was like positive reviews sure. and everyone like, it was odd that everyone liked it. Sure. So another history making first took place on April 16th. And this is the night before the car's and official release. 1964. Okay. For the first time, this company took out simultaneous ads on the three major TV networks during prime time. So this is a time when you basically only had like three major networks that right. you could watch on TV. And the car's image was projected on TV screens and living rooms across the nation into 29 million homes. So here's the, here's what I'm thinking when you say simultaneous. I'm thinking of it being like you're watching uh, Johnny Carson or whatever. Yep. And it goes to commercial and you see this car. Yep. And you go, ah, fuck it, uh, commercial. So you switch to like channel six. Yes. And it's the same commercial playing. And you go to channel exactly. four. It's the same commercial playing. You're like, what? <laughs> it would just like blow your mind. Yeah. So 29 million homes though saw this advertisement and the next day the official release advertisements announcing the car released in more than 26,000 newspapers in approximately 2200 markets so the car was officially released to the public at the new york world's fair as well but it had just press like crazy and in addition they wanted to generate what they called mass enthusiasm so it was considered vital to expose the car as quickly as possible to as many people as possible sure so, so it's just basically marketing by overwhelming force. Exactly. And quote, since the entire public could not come to the car, the car was taken to the public. Okay. City dwellers saw it at more than 70 high traffic metropolitan locations like malls throughout the U.S. Air travelers saw them displayed in 15 major U.S. airports. The car was featured on billboards. Game shows were given a new car as a prize. And 100 Holiday Inn locations had the car sitting as a centerpiece in their lobby. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> and it worked. Uh, at various dealerships throughout the nation, some startling incidents took place. A San Francisco truck driver, apparently thrown into a trance by the sight of the car in the showroom, could not take his eyes away and drove his truck straight through the showroom window. Wow. Yeah. Are you sure we're not talking about a model? Because that's, I mean, I... No, I no, was, this is... I was at the mall with Alex yesterday. <laughs> And okay. I walked by this girl and literally walked into a display. Just like, <laughs> I just—it was embarrassing. You know that girl will just be like, "Yeah, I looked pretty oh, good." Yeah. This this other guy, this old dude, was looking at me, and he walked right into this freaking mannequin. <laughs> That's only happened once in my life. We're getting on a tangent where, like, it will like took your breath away, and literally every man and even woman in the area that saw this woman like just stopped what they're doing and dropped things to watch her <laughs> walk by. It was in uh, Venice, Italy, and oh. you could tell she was coming from the airport to do like a fashion shoot or something. Sure, and she was just like amazing yeah even nikki was like wow yeah it's it's weird when you see i've I've actually you know you can even see men when they're really like good looking and have like this aura. it's just a human thing right this aura about them and they just attract attention right you usually don't see that with things which is why i brought that up right so apparently this car definitely had the aura at the time and a truck driver drove his truck into the window another incident is in chicago a dealer had to lock the doors of the car in the showroom because so many people were trying to cram into the car at once to take a look at it and they were like injuring themselves like another person would be like sitting in the car and they're like well i'm gonna get in too Jeez. so i'm trying to think like i i think i know what the car is but i'm thinking about in today's society if there's anything that's been anything close to this i don't i'm trying to think of anything i don't think so either maybe like iphones that's what i thought too but it's it's different i think you mean you got people lining up around the whole thing or back when they used to release release the the playstation 2 when the playstation 2 came out i mean it was huge but even that is just it's it's yeah, it kind of doesn't doesn't compare. So two more instances that I think were really funny sure. about how crazy people were in the van for this is a Pittsburgh dealer with a car up on the hoist couldn't lower the car off the lift because there was a crowd of people underneath it. He apparently, I don't know if I believe this, but it said he apparently had to wait until after dinner time when everyone left to take the car off the lift. I guess if I would have been like coming down, I would have yeah, pulled the lever. Exactly. However, one of the most emotional of all the reactions occurred at a dealership where 15 competing customers tried to buy the last car on the lot. So the dealer, of course, proceeded to basically auction it off and said, okay, well, we're going to ask a premium then. Who's going to give me the biggest number? Right. And so the successful buyer, someone finally said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll take it for the most, insisted on sleeping in the car overnight in the showroom. Like, they're locking up the door. He's like, no, I'm sleeping in the car, quote, so they won't sell it out from under me before my check clears in the morning. (laughs) 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 Which my question is, why couldn't you just like go across town to another dealer that had another one? They probably didn't have them. I guess not. So based on all this hype and the market research before they released the car, the original sales goal was to sell 100,000 units in the first production year. And that is a lofty number. Nothing to scoff at, right? Sure. They surpassed that figure within the first four months. Yeah. In fact, 17 months after its release, the one millionth example of the Ford Mustang was sold. Indeed. So what what was the Mustang really competing with at that time? Nothing. So I'm going to keep going. We're only halfway through the story, but that's the big reveal. 
ooh, ah. I'm sure everyone <laughs> knew it by then. But I, if I was trying to figure out whether it was the Corvette at first, and then when you said 64, I kind of went, oh, yeah. Yeah, Corvette was 54. Yeah. Um, so it was the most successful vehicle launch in history and still holds the record for most cars sold in its first year. Supposedly that has not been broken. That's insane. That is. So the Mustang came in three variations, coupe, convertible, and then the Fastback was released in 65. So the first year Mustang... thought. Go ahead. I think the only manufacturer that's come close is Tesla. To the hype, With the rabid enthusiasm and the rabid hype and the overwhelming desire to own and and just the, the drive to support them and be with them. But here's the thing. They don't do any marketing. So it's like this really weird don't. it's like this weird thing where it was like Ford uses this overwhelming like bulldozer marketing technique. Right. Tesla hasn't done any, but it's still like the same rabid fan base where people are yeah. I'm just trying to think of anything that's no, like I kind know. of held up to that. And I'm skeptical because we haven't lived through this back in sixty four to really right. compare it. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know how it would compare. So it is interesting, though, when they released in 64, because they were in such a rush to get it released on the World's Fair, like that was their deadline. They wanted it released at the New York World's Fair, which was midway through 1964. And usually models are released, you know, closer to the new year. So that right. considered 1964 and a half are the first Mustangs. Right. And those ones are more desirable because they're, you know, the half year, the first half year. Of course. And anything then in 65. That makes, anything that makes anything rare right. in any way, like one of whatever. You know, but then in '65 they came out with the Fastback, which is obviously the better looking one. Yeah. So, and they also offered many uh, limited edition models and performance models throughout the years. We know that Shelby, of course, got involved and made the GT350, and then the GT500, and then the GT500 KR, King Cobra, King of the Road. Oh, King of the Road. Yes, yes. that's right. There was also right. the Cobra, as well as the Mach One and the Boss 302. I love the idea of and the Boss King, 429, King of the Road. I yes. really like that. That term is just great. You might not have known this, though. In a historic and unlikely partnership, for only $17 a day and seven cents a mile, you could head down to your local Hertz rent-a-car and drive your very own Shelby GT350H, the Hertz edition. All right. And the car became known as the infamous Rent-A-Racer. I bet. I mean, I'm sure they would just rent them and then take them down to the track immediately. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just go drag race them. Can and I'm imagine? sure Hertz knew exactly what people were doing. But, hey, it got people in the door. I know there's whole other articles and everything else about that partnership that I didn't delve into because sure. I think there was, like, something in the contract that either said, like, you will be racing it or you won't. Or Again, I didn't go down that wormhole. Could you imagine them doing something like that today? So I think they actually did release the newer Shelby as a Hertz edition as well. But I'm sure, like, the contract and like, like everything 70, else 7, yeah. pages long can you imagine no well hertz and all those rental companies are hurting pretty bad are they i suppose they with like uber, uber and everything and else it's car so cheap. and everything else yep so hurting. uh as you asked before though the success of the ford mustang caught the attention of all the other car manufacturers such as chevy dodge and pontiac soon every car manufacturer was producing competing models chevy had the camaro pontiac the firebird dodge released the challenger mercury had the cougar and even AMC created the Javelin. So I love, I love the Javelin. Do you like the Javelin? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the cars became effectively known as pony cars as a tribute to the car that started it all, the Mustang, which, of course, is named after a horse, if you didn't know. So throughout the 60s and 70s, these pony cars gave way to even Not more just a powerful. Horse, a wild stallion horse, like a wild horse, like a Mustang, like a wild horse. Is, 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 is that by definition a Mustang has to be a wild horse? I th- I cannot say, but that's what I always envision when I think of 
the Mustang horse is a wild stallion. And just mainly because you see the logo and it's running. Yeah. I just, it's got to be like a wild stallion. It's got to <laughs> okay, be. Okay. It's named after a wild stallion, then, yes. according to Chris. All right. I'm looking so, it up. Continue through the 60s and 70s, these pony cars, you know, that includes the Javelin, the Camaro and Firebird and everything else, they, they gave way to more powerful and bigger cars, what we now consider muscle cars, including the Cuda, Dodge Challenger, Chevelle, those sorts of things. And it's important to distinguish these muscle cars from the original pony cars because the Mustang wait, and its wait, competitors. Okay, so Mustang is a free roaming horse of the American West. So it is wild. Yeah, it's a wild There horse. we go. Makes sense. Came from Spain. Yes. So pony cars were supposedly more light, affordable, and sporty than muscle cars, right? Until they weren't. So right. as with any car in America, for some reason, the Mustang slowly became bloated, trying to compete with the new fleet of big, heavy muscle cars. And between 1965 and 1973... Well, it, it became a compromise. Yes. They had to sell more and... They needed a compromise. They were trying to tap other markets, and they fucking ruined it. I'm glad you brought that up. So between 65 and 73, the Mustang gained over 600 pounds and over a foot in length. Jesus. In May of 1968, Anna Muccioli, a Ford stockholder, got on the stockroom floor at the company's stockholder meeting and said, quote, we have it. I have a 65 Mustang, and I don't like what's happening. They're blowing them up. Why can't you just leave a sports car small? I mean, you keep blowing them up and starting another little one. Blow that one up and start another. I mean, why don't you just leave them alone? (laughs) I love this lady. And she wasn't alone. Sales began to decline by the beginning of the 70s. Lee Iacocca, the father of the Mustang, as he's known, had worked his way up the corporate ladder and was now the president of Ford Motor Company in 1970. He said, quote, by trying to please one segment of the Mustang market that wanted the car bigger, we were losing the much larger majority of the original Mustang lever who didn't want it changed. The market never left us. The original Mustang buyer is still there, still wanting a good little car. We walked away from the market. True. So I think every manufacturer does this over and over. It's exactly over what, uh, what was her name? Uh, Anna said, you keep making these smaller models, making them bigger, and then you just get another smaller one to replace it. Yep. It's stupid. So in addition to you know people that's saying why, they that's don't why like we had the big a, car, we had a, that's why we have a one series and an, I know. an A3 and all this other stuff. It's just because the A4 and the three series got too big yep. and people still want a small car. That's why they're selling these new ones that are smaller. Yep. It's stupid. Why don't they just release a bigger car? Exactly. <laughs> and just or leave it alone. They have a bigger car. It's called the five series or the A6 or you know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Well, you have to. I don't want to get into a tangent too much, but it's because all the safety standards, they have to keep adding crumple zones and adding this right. and airbags and weight. And but, then as you do this and you have to add more power and it's just this like runaway thing that. But if they can make a smaller model then that fits below that, that still has safety standards and power, why don't they just keep it where it's at? Yeah, just it's the consumer. Okay. Well, in addition to the consumer, sporty compacts, especially imports, were seeing steady growth in the U.S. So with that changing market, the Mustang underwent a complete redesign, outwent the body-on-frame construction in favor of a new unibody chassis. And to achieve a totally new look, Iacocca turned to the Italian design firm Ghia. And in 1973, the Mustang II, the second generation of the Mustang, was released. Sales turned around and contemporary... Contemporary They're consumers so liked the second-gen Mustang for its improvements. And it actually didn't hurt that the year after its release in 74, 
the OPEC oil embargo went into effect. So America is suddenly becoming aware of fuel efficiency and, you know, watching their fuel gauges perilously. This new lighter, smaller Mustang all of a sudden didn't look so terrible because it's considered fuel efficient. However, as you said, looking back, the second gen Mustang is totally the ugly stepchild of the bottle. There's like, I've never seen one that I thought looks good. No. Never. Not so once. not only that, with the EPA restrictions, it was strangled and it was like pathetically low horse, horsepower. The styling was, you know, like sharp and stylish in its day, but definitely hasn't aged well. No. And the early unibody construction didn't fare well at the drag strip, which is what people want to use older Mustangs for a lot of times. They're basically useless. They are. Yeah. So the next major redesign saw the dawn of the now classic Fox body Mustang. And with it, the iconic 5.0. The 5.0, which sadly got kicked out of the out of the car for a 4.6 eventually, but I really do but like that. But it's back. The Coyote engine is a 5.0. That's right. So later on in the 80s, the Mustang almost faced extinction with the newly developed Ford Probe, the Crescetta pink one of apparently, no. <laughs> being seen as filling the sports car segment at Ford and the rear-wheel drive Mustang becoming whoa, 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 whoa. long in the tube. I can't. No, we're just going to keep going. The plans to retire the Mustang model were in the works. Luckily, word got out. I, I think it was like Automobile Magazine or something that they printed basically Ford's plan. And hundreds of thousands of letters basically just telling Ford to fuck off came into their offices and uh, challenged the fact that they were going to change this American icon. And so the target audience made itself clear. It wouldn't stand for a front-wheel drive Mustang. And instead, a few years later, the 1994 SN95 generation is the one I had came and then followed by the new edge kind of refresh in 99. This Which is, is this, all based on your probe. Yeah, <laughs> this is where, I mean, I, I like some of the later Fox bodies and stuff like that. But, I like the Fox body better. But after that, after that, everything just kind of goes to shit for me. I yeah. just kind of, oh, the new ones look fine. They perform fine, but they just kind of lose me and I just don't have much interest anymore. So we'll finish it off quick then. In 05, the fifth generation kicked off and this is the retro style theme, bringing back the round headlights, heralding back to the 60s fastback so every time design. I, every time I talk about what Porsche has done with having like a, a basically a contiguous model mm-hmm. from the day it was incept- inception of the, the car's uh, release till right. now. Everybody goes, well, well, the Mustang did that. I'm like, yeah, but not really because it changed the way that it looked over and over and over and over again. It's not like it had the same DNA. Right. It's not like having a kid and it looks like you. And then that kid has another kid and that kid still kind of looks like you. I mean, it's it's not like that. It's, <clears throat> it's 996. It's, <clears throat> no, it still has the shape. If you <laughs> if you pull the nine, uh, a 996 up next to a 911, it still is and looks it like is. a 911. And yeah. that's the the Mustang stuff. Just it kind of just jumped all over the place. Like they just couldn't figure out what they were doing, and they couldn't. Like they had to keep adapt- in their own way. They had to keep adapting because right. it's not like a specialty car like a Porsche. Exactly. Right? So they had to keep uh, adapting what the market needed, whether it was the gas crisis or whatever. Or then once that was over, then they could go back and put a five liter in things. So they kept jumping around so much, and that so that comparison never really works for me i just but i just keep hearing it it. i hear it all the time no i get it and it it is ironic that this kind of retro um throwback one was it it was popular and it led to the re-emergence of the chevy camaro and the dodge challenger and it's just kind of ironic because mustang was the first to basically spawn those off in the 60s as well and the thunderbird which was a roaring hit that was terrible (laughs) 
That was that came out earlier than the the throwback Mustang, though. Yeah, but that whole era was throwback everything. Yeah, you're right. So uh, recently, the sixth generation in 2015, Ford drops the retro style and kind of is a modernized look of it. Um, gone was the hallmark solid rear axle, which was kind of just a holdout in any other car. Yep. It's basically just a truck rear axle in favor of the independent rear suspension. And this also marked the first time the Mux- Mustang was sold outside North America. So you know you can buy them in Europe now. Yeah, yeah. So sure. I, I'd kind of like to hear some of our international listeners' perspective on the Mustang because okay. not not seeing them throughout the streets as you're growing up all day and you and just know they're, they're and there. it's just it's just well, you know they, it's, us, they were imported and stuff. I know that, but but they weren't ever sold there, right? So it almost I'm curious if it's like maybe it was cool like cool because it's rare and maybe it was a fuck you like you can't have this right. right. That's what I'd like to think is that we just told the world to fuck off. You can't have the best of what we have. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm curious if you have uh, an outside perspective of the U.S. because, like I said, we kind of grew up with it and it didn't seem that special to us. No, it never. I did. mean, it's it is a sports car in a way. I Very don't understand. I mean, they're vanilla just, sports car, but they're just fucking everywhere. They're yes, they everywhere. are. They are everywhere at like. Uh, well, now it shows us like that. They're, they're just well. Now you, you realize how they sold a million of them in only seventeen months, I a little it's less than a year and a half. So throughout its continuous fifty-four year production, like you said, uh, actually I think similar to the nine eleven wasn't nine eleven brought over in sixty-four. Yeah. So there is another uh, That's another one analogy. It's one of the reasons people say, "Oh, yeah. nine sixty-four. No, sorry. So the Mustangs remained an American icon, created an entire segment of cars like we talked about, the pony car, inspired, actually, I didn't realize the Trans Am racing series in the 70s was basically a direct result of these pony cars coming out and people saying, okay, well, let's race these. Right. And that was Trans Am, how that came around. Yep. It's been featured in countless movings, including my favorite and strongly believe the best car chase scene of all time, Bullet. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It was awesome because there's no music set to it either. I do like that. Quite Supposedly, a bit. the director was planning on putting music until he heard that Mustang as they're filming. Yeah. He's like, you know what? Just, just leave it. Just leave it. I, I love I, that. I fact. do agree with that. I think my favorite chase scene. I think we I feel like we talked about this at one time. Um, is from uh, uh, Born uh, Born Identity or Born Supremacy or one of those. There's a really good chase. The scene mini down the the stairs. It, no, that the mini down the stairs is that's the Born Identity. Is it? Yeah, maybe it is that one. But I think it's more. It's there's an SUV one where he's driving a G wagon. Yes. or a Land Rover. That's like the second one or whatever that one really is. Really good. There's a really good chase. Scene, really well choreographed. I don't know. You, you, I think you, you have to beat Steve McQueen, the King of Cool, in the American Icon, the Mustang. Chasing down the bad guys with a shot-off shotgun. In the the context of this episode, you can't beat it. You can't beat it. It's undeniably cool and undeniably American. Agreed. So there we have the American story of the Ford Mustang. That was great, and uh, I want to I want to encourage everybody to go blow their fingers off with some firecrackers, <laughs> and uh, and uh, make sure you enjoy your Independence Day. You know, can I say this whole this whole article? I didn't get one single joke about plowing into crowds in a car show. That's I'm a little okay. disappointed. That's okay. That's not very American. <laughs> True. All right, we'll leave that to our listeners to comment on. All right, take care, guys, and happy Fourth. Rolling in my five point oh. Rolling. In my 5.0